We'll just pray. Thank you, Father, that um, Christ is the head of the church. Thank you, Lord, that you come and revealed um, Jesus to the, the principalities and powers in the church, that uh, we could find our interaction with each other and our fellowship with one another shaped by Christ and the life that he has in himself. I just thank you, Lord, that uh, man, we could just uh, hear about the spirit of meekness today and we can just find ourselves dwelling in the spirit of meekness and uh, walking with one another in the spirit of, of meekness. And we could just find our group and the body of Christ knit together in love. Thank you, Father, that uh, you poured out your spirit into the earth to knit us together in love and that uh, your will will be done. Amen. Glory to God. Um, I don't know if it's recently or not. I guess it might be recently. Uh, apparently a famous minister in the world. I don't know who it was. I just get emails. But apparently in the last few months, a famous minister had some great falling uh, from grace or something. Um, and so I get lots of these emails asking me, um, what does it look like in the church to deal with situations where um, somebody can be taken captive in a fault? And so what I thought today is we, you know, I think we all will find the spirit of God born in us because we've been preaching the spirit for so much. But I get these emails all the time. And so I just thought I would address this in the scriptures, um, the inner workings in the body of Christ and how we can be of help to one another should me, you, or any one of us be overtaken in a fault. How can we be of help to one another should any of us be overtaken in a fault? Okay, Because um, understanding the, the Spirit involved, or the Holy Spirit, will either knit a group together in love, in those situations, or it will splinter a group. And it will either send offense away, or it will cause offense to manifest, right? And so we just want to look at, at, at what this looks like, um, the governance in the church, if we, we want to call it that. Because, guys, the, the, the church body functions under a different type of governing than the world would function. Right? The world functions in a completely different way than the church would function. And so the world wants to come and find fault with people, and the world wants to hold people accountable, and the world wants to punish people. That's their idea of how you deal with someone when they're caught up in a fault. But the church is not that way. Right? That's not the, the, the way the church is with each other should not be the same way that the world is with each other. If you remember in the, in the Corinthian church, when Paul found that those guys were disputing with each other and one of them was taking the other one to court. He's like, what's wrong with you guys? Can we not settle the matter within the body of Christ here? You're even living with each other the same way the world would live, where you have a grievance and you're taking your grievance to people that don't even know the Lord to solve? I mean, rather bring it up in the church and let us solve it amongst each other, right? And so there is the inner workings of the church and the way we interact with each other and the way we deal with life as it can happen around us or happen to us or happen to somebody that we love, right? Because no matter um, what can happen, we want the Spirit of God to be manifested in that situation. And what we know about the Spirit of God is that it's always restoring. It's never splintering, right? It's always uh, bringing union. It's never bringing division. And so we just want to look at these verses, and we'll take um, the message today from the Galatians 6, 
That will be the primary text that we pull from today. Galatians 6, and this is from the King James Version, verse 1. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, listen ladies, you can also be overtaken in a fault. You don't want to read that verse and think it's only the men <laughs> that can be overtaken in the fault. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had somebody tell me that once. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it does say man. <laughs> I mean, she had a valid point, right? It does say man. <laughs> anyway, man means man or woman. <laughs> if any person, in the, in the new translations, they, they insert person. <laughs> if any person be overtaken in a fault, you, which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest you also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he says, listen, let those who are spiritual be the ones that would restore someone should they be overtaken in a fault. And let them restore them through the spirit of meekness. It is the spirit of meekness that will actually restore these people. And let those that are spiritual um, consider themselves lest they succumb to a temptation. And so, just real quick, what it means to consider yourself is it, is it means to consider that within yourself, you don't possess the strength to produce the fruit of God's life. It means for you to consider that within the strength you have in yourself, you can only build a life that's but dust. It means for you to consider your inability to produce God's life and your inability to produce the fruit of God's life, lest you be caught up in a temptation that points to you and tells you about how you need to clothe yourself with life, right? Because that's the temptation, right? Jesus, when he was on the cross, he considered himself. And you know what he considered? Inside of this dust body is not the ability to clothe upon myself with life. And so he didn't fall prey to the temptation of the serpent when the serpent was in the Pharisees telling him, come down off the cross, clothe yourself, prove you're the son. And so that's what it means to consider yourself. It means to consider, um, is it my own good works that justify me or is it the work of God that justifies me? That's what it means to consider yourself. Lest you also be tempted and end up walking in your own good works instead of walking in the good work of God, okay? And when it says, bear ye one another's burdens, bear means to lift one another up when they're in the midst of being burdened. It means to comfort one another when they're in the midst of being burdened. And the way you would comfort them is through the message of Jesus. That's how you would comfort them. You would come and declare the message of Christ and Him crucified. And that would comfort them. And through that, what would happen is, is we would see the realization of the life of Christ manifesting in us through the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it's saying. So when people are caught up in a fault, they're carrying a heavy burden. You know the heavy burden they're carrying? They're carrying the burden of trying to bring forth life themselves. Now, comfort them, lift them up by coming and declaring to them the message of Christ crucified and thus see the law of Christ fulfilled. The law of Christ, he goes on to talk about, sow to the Spirit and you shall from the Spirit reap life. And so the law of Christ is that within Christ is a life. And that life can even overcome death in the flesh. And that life can even produce the fruit of God's life in you free from your works. And when you come to somebody who's been 
caught up in a fault because they're carrying the burden of bringing forth life themselves. When you come with the message how there's a life in Christ that can bring forth life in you free from your works, that will bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in those guys. That's what he's talking about. Okay? So that's what he's talking about. Listen, if you're caught up in a fault and you come to me with your fault and I think that the fruit that's in my life that is good is on account of my own works, listen, man, I need to check myself. So if we wanted to put modern language on this, <laughs> brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, checking yourself, <laughs> lest you also be tempted. Right? Check yourself at the door and don't look and think that because you're not caught up in that fault, it's because of your own strength and your own goodness. Don't be thinking like that because the next time that the, something goes wrong for you, your mind is going to be filled with your own works. So check yourself. <laughs> check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> That's exactly right. Check yourself before you, you wreck yourself. Now listen, guys. The, the, the point of what Paul's teaching here, if, if you look at the letter to the Galatians, Paul is actually restoring them because they had been caught up in a fault. And so he, he's actually restoring them, which is why he brings it up. And he's trying to give them the metric for which they could dwell with one another instead of backbiting and devouring one another where they could find themselves knit together in love even should one of them or some of them be overtaken in a fault. That's what he's, he's busy with. So the point of what Paul's saying here isn't that we should be going around looking for faults in one another. <laughs> I know some people think that's a gift of the Spirit. <laughs> Where I can see your secret sin, and now I'm going to tell you about it. Listen, man, I can promise you this. The Holy Spirit will never come and unveil your sin because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the living God. And Hebrews comes and said, God remembers your sin no more. So I don't care what man or what woman or what name they attach to the beginning of their name. If they come to you and uncover your nakedness and come to you and try to point out some secret sin, they cometh not from above. So that, that's not the point Paul's trying to make here. We're not trying to walk around finding each other's faults. Okay? As members of the body of Christ, we should not be walking around looking for the beams in one another's eyes. Right? We shouldn't. Where's the beam? I know they have a beam. Where is it? It's, that's, not how it that's not how it goes down. And listen, if, if you feel that um, you must look for a beam in someone's eye, if you feel compelled by the Lord, then let your conversation or conduct be centered around you asking the Lord about the beam in your own eye. If you've got to find a beam, talk with the Lord about the beam in your own eye rather than walking around trying to find a beam in someone else's eye. I know that's a hard saying, man. I mean, God even, and I use this language freely, so hopefully this, no one takes this the wrong way. I remember when I was all the time convinced that the people in my life that, that I thought were causing me pain, it was because the beam they had in their eye. And if they could just fix that beam, then I would be good. And what God come and said is, Greg, have you considered that maybe there's a beam in your eye and that's what's causing you to be upset with them? Nah, 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 that's, that's never it. <laughs> oh, good joke, Lord, <laughs> good joke. <laughs> nah, nah, that can never be it, right? But I promise you, he was right. That there was something in my heart that was causing me pain, and it really had nothing to do with them. And magically, do you know what happened? I got set free when I started imputing, stopped imputing the pain I felt to the people around me. And I started asking God, what's going on in me that I feel this pain, Lord? Right? And then that was like an invitation to the Lord to come swooping in like a bomb and heal 
my heart. Right? Glory to God. So the Apostle Paul says, should one of our brothers or sisters be um, taken captive by a fault? That's the first thing you want to look at. Should a person be caught up or overtaken in a fault, they're being abused by the serpent system. Right? They're being beaten and bruised. They're being taken captive right, to the serpent system. That's what's going on there. So should one of our brothers or sisters be taken captive in a fault? What we want to be busy with is let those who are spiritual restore them by the spirit of meekness or in the spirit of meekness. That's what Paul would come and say there. So listen, the, the goal the apostle Paul has, notice he uses the word restore. So the goal the apostle Paul has in mind there is restorative, not punitive. I'm going to say that again. Should someone be overtaken in a fault, Paul's not busy thinking of, what's wrong with them? We're going to come with a smack. That's not what he's thinking. His mind is filled with them being restored. His mind is not filled with them being punished. That's what his mind is filled with. His, it's not what he's thinking of. His heart, what's in his heart for, for those people, isn't to lord it over their faith or to hold them accountable what Paul's actually thinking of is how can we help them to experience the joy of the Lord? How can we help them to experience the fruit of the Spirit in their lives? That's what Paul actually sees is the answer. He sees the problem is these guys are not experiencing the joy of the Lord. They're not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. So how can we come alongside of them and help them to experience the fruit of the Spirit? Well, as we've read the, the letter to the Galatians, we understand that the way someone receives the fruit of the Spirit is by the seed that is Christ being sown into their heart because His seed or His life is an incorruptible seed and it produces the fruit of the Spirit in people. So Paul's like, should a person be overtaken or taken captive in a fault, let those who are spiritual come and by the spirit of meekness that they're dwelling in, let them come alongside them and help them to once again be restored to the joy of the Lord. Let them come alongside them and help them to experience the fruit of the Spirit in their lives again. That's what he's busy thinking. And if you read his letter to the Corinthians, you see that kind of a dynamic because in the, the first letter, he says something about some of their behaviors. And in the second letter, he says, listen, you guys misinterpreted the strength in my words. My words were so strong because I care deeply about your life. And I care deeply about your lives being saved from the destruction in the world. But I didn't come full of anger towards you because of your fault. Neither did I come to lord it over your faith. But I came to be a helper to you in your ability to experience the joy of God. Everything I said was so you could be restored to joy. And I promise you, if someone is taken captive in a fault... The root of that thing is they've been overcome by the sorrow they feel about their life and about the world. And they need joy to return. And so that's what Paul's busy thinking. He's not thinking, well, we got to get together and figure out if they're really saved, you know, because faith without works is dead. Because <laughs> maybe they ain't even saved, and now we got to, you know, we got to get down with that. <laughs> that's not what he's thinking. That's not what he's thinking. I mean, notice how Paul didn't say that to Peter when he found Peter, like, dwelling in hypocrisy. He didn't come and say, you know, Peter, faith without works is dead. <laughs> Are you really saved, bro? <laughs> notice he didn't say that, did he? 
you know what Paul was busy with when he found Peter that way? Restoring Peter to the fruit of God's life. To where the fear that Peter felt over what could happen to him should the, 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 the Jewish people or the Pharisees see him eating with Gentiles? Where Peter could be delivered from that fear that he felt. And he could walk upright with Jewish people and Gentile people. And his life could be shaped by the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So, when we think of someone being restored from a fault, you know, we've built understanding in this fellowship, like building blocks. And you build all these building blocks, and it helps you to interpret things. But when we think of how someone can be restored from a fault, we, we want to be mindful of what causes the works of the flesh to manifest in people to begin with. And if we don't know, then maybe we shouldn't be telling them anything. <laughs> we we want to first think to ourselves, well, what causes the works of the flesh to manifest in a person to begin with? Because I promise you this, we won't see people restored through a message of touch not, taste not, handle not. If you find someone overtaken in a fault, they've been overcome by it. That means they've been taken captive by it. That means, like Paul said in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I'm not doing. And the bad that I don't want to do is the very thing I find myself doing. Oh, wretched men that I am. I promise you, a message of touch not, taste not, handle not is not going to help that person. They're already busy thinking that. Right? That kind of ministering will actually send people off looking for deliverance from the very thing that caused the works of the flesh to manifest in them to begin with. The message that you can find life by your strength to touch not, taste not, handle not is what brings forth the fruit of death in you to begin with. It's like thinking you're going to sequester the power of the devil to now cast out a demon. If you think you're going to find somebody restored from a fault by preaching a message of touch not, taste not, handle not, which is the very thing that produces the fault, and that's the same as thinking, well, we want to cast this demon out. Let's go talk to the devil and see if we can get that done. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen in that situation? He's going to add more devils to it. You come with a message of touch not, taste not, handle not to someone overtaken in a fault, and you're heaping upon them more fault is what you're doing. Guilt and shame and all those kinds of things. Restoration is not about trying to make the outside of the cup clean. Really what we're doing is trying to bring ourselves peace, right? We don't like what we see in them, and if they could just clean up the outside of the cup, we can have peace. And it's about if we feel comfortable around them or not. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. And so restoration is not about trying to make the outside of the cup clean. It's about the inside of the cup being washed clean. That's what it's focused on. So you're dealing with the belief in the heart. You're not dealing with the external. And human beings have a tendency to judge things according to the flesh or judge things outwardly instead of understanding the dynamic going on in the heart. And so we always speak to the outward behavior instead of speaking to the dynamic going on in the heart. We never come and bind the strong man, which has found a way into their heart to bring forth his fruit in their lives. We're always trying to bind their behavior. The gospel is not a message of behavior modification. It's not. We don't need the gospel for that. I promise you, I can point you to many different groups in the world that are all the time preaching behavior modification. It ain't got nothing to do with God. 
And so God's busy thinking of how can we heal the fear and the pain in their heart that's taken them captive? How can we heal that? That's what God's mind is busy thinking. I mean, Jesus stood up and said, I judge no person according to the flesh. Didn't he? I mean, he certainly did. So, should a, be, should a person be caught in a fault, what is the fault to begin with? What, what's going on there? Should a person be caught in a fault, the fault that they have is that they've fallen from the grace that has come to us in Jesus. That's the fault that they have. Now, falling from grace is not about God is angry with you now. That's not what it means to fall from grace. Grace is not God's love for you. Grace is something completely different. So to fall from grace doesn't now mean that you're somehow outside of God smiling down upon you. You're not like you, you were, God was happy with you, and now he's angry with you. That's not what it means to fall from grace. Falling from grace doesn't mean that you've now lost eternal life. That's not what it means there. That's not what he's talking about. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you anymore if you've fallen from grace. That's not what it means. So the question we should ask ourselves is, what is grace? There's so much confusion even about grace. I see people write things on the internet about grace, and they're describing love, not grace. I mean, some people think grace is how we're going to come together and be thankful for food. Let's say grace. <laughs> so what, what does it mean to fall from grace? The grace of God is His strength to bring forth life. That's the grace of God. His strength to bring forth life. It was by grace in Genesis that God brought forth order out of the midst of the darkness and chaos that was covering the earth. It was by his grace that he did that. He had a strength within himself. There was a strength in his life that created all things that exist and that brought life forth in the midst of darkness and chaos. There was a strength in his life. That strength that is in his life is his grace. And so that's the grace of God. God is like a bad mamma jamma. My man can produce life. And my man can produce the kind of life that ain't subject to death. My man can produce the kind of life that can even swallow death. That's what my man's got going on inside of him. And that is his grace. Now, if we want to look at it in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, I don't know if you guys caught that, but grace existed before man. I know so many times we think grace just came to be after man sinned. But grace was before man was. Grace has always been, right? God created man by his grace. And so grace isn't just something that had to become because man had now some, somehow sinned. That's not what it's about. And in Paul's letter to the Galatians, what we could define grace is, in Paul's mind when he's writing to these guys, the grace of God is his strength to overcome death in the flesh and to manifest his life and the fruit of his life in mankind. That's his grace. His strength to do that. That's what his grace is, right? And so God's grace is found in the work he's done in Christ to conquer death and gift us with the blessing of his incorruptible life. His grace is found in the work that he's done to conquer death and to gift us the blessing of his incorruptible life. 
I mean, there's nothing greater that anybody could give you, right? I mean, the world has a, an inheritance structure where, yeah, you hope you can inherit something from a rich relative, right? Maybe all of us are thinking, maybe we have a rich relative we don't know about that's going to bequeath us some money or something, right? And so there's an inheritance that's of the world, and there's an inheritance that's of God. And see, the riches, the treasure that God has in himself to give is an incorruptible life, the blessing of an incorruptible life. So that's the grace of God. His grace is found in the very thing he did in Jesus to conquer death and to gift us. That means give us his incorruptible life free from our works, free from anything we could do for him. He came and gave us that. That's his grace. Now, there's strength for us, for us in what God has done that heals us from the poison of asps, that heals us from the sting of the death that's in the world. There's strength for us in what God has done that will heal our lives from the bite of the serpent. There's strength for us in what God has done that will produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There's strength for us in what God has done. And so when we're sitting in around desiring life or wanting life, the strength for us to see the life that we're desiring manifest in us is found in what God's done in Jesus. That's where it's found. That's where it is. And so when you find a person overtaken in a fault, it means that they're dwelling in the weakness of their own strength. And what they need is to find themselves dwelling in the strength of God. And the way that they would find themselves dwelling in the strength of God, the way they could find God's fruit manifesting in them and in their lives is through the message of what God's done in Jesus. And that message will restore their lives to joy and to the fruit of the Spirit. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And so when the Apostle Paul talks about falling from grace, it means that the people that he's talking about, they're walking in their own good works instead of walking in the good work of God. Their mind is filled with their own good works instead of the good work of God. Their mind is filled with their own ability instead of the ability of God. They're walking around in this world, seeing that they desire life, and when they think of how they can have life, their mind is filled with their own works, instead of their mind being filled with the work that God has done in Jesus. That's what it means that they've fallen from grace. They're identifying with the life that is in the world, that is but dust, and as a result of them doing that, they are looking to the strength in their own hand, they're looking to their own strength to justify themselves with life. That's what it means that they've fallen from grace. They got a desire to be fruitful. I mean, we all got a desire to be fruitful, don't we? They got a desire to be fruitful, but they're living as if the power for them to be fruitful is found in the strength of their own works. Right? That's what it means. So... Like, I know for a lot of, we'll just use this example because it's big in the church. For a lot of years in my life, if I didn't see the fruit of God's life going on in me, I thought maybe somehow I didn't give the right 10%. Maybe I was giving 10 on the gross or the net <laughs> instead of the gross. So, the, the, see, the, see, you see, the moment where I thought I saw something inconsistent with life, 
or I thought that I was lacking life. My mind didn't go to the work God did in Jesus to overcome the death in the world and give me his life as a gift. My mind went to the works that I had either done or not done that could give me life. You see the difference? You see the difference there? That's what it means to fall from grace. Okay, that's what it's talking about when it talks about falling from grace. So Paul comes and says, you who are spiritual... First of all, if you're spiritual, you don't think you're better than anybody else. That's the first thing you know. You make no boasting in yourself or what you're doing. You ain't like the Pharisee in Luke 17 or 18 standing before God telling God how thankful he is that he's done all the works of the law. That ain't what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're, you're mindful of yourself and you're thinking, Lord, within myself, I have nothing to give you. I need everything and I have nothing to offer. That's what you're thinking. Paul would be considered spiritual. And you know what Paul come and said? I'm the chief of all sinners. <laughs> he didn't see himself as better than anybody else. He didn't see himself as being a super Christian or a better Christian than other people. He didn't see it that way because he was mindful of himself. He considered himself and he saw that within his own strength, when he was walking in his own good works, when he was busy thinking that he could attain to the blessing of life by his own strength to gather the good in the world to himself, he saw that that only brought forth covetousness in him and he saw that resulted in him actually murdering the church. And so he was mindful. The, the strength I have in my hand, it can only build the life that is but dust. And so he would never see himself as greater than someone else. He would see that there's one who's good, the Father. And he would see any good thing that's coming out of me today that I think is born from above, it has got to have come from the Father and the Father's faithfulness towards me, not out of my strength or my faithfulness to God. He's mindful of himself. Right? I know that I am but dust. I know that my strength can only produce dust <laughs> right and that's what causes you to see everybody as equal you ain't busy looking at their outward actions and thinking they're less than or better than right because you see well even should there be something good out coming out of me where did it come from it came from god it ain't come from me so how am i going to judge this guy i'm not i'm just going to tell this guy about the father that can produce life that's what i'm going to do and that's how i'm going to walk with this guy Glory to God. So you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness or by the spirit of meekness. A person who is spiritual, to tie it back into Paul's letter, is someone walking after the spirit and not walking after the flesh. They're walking in the life that is born from the power of the spirit. They're walking in the life that God brought forth when he raised Jesus from the dead and glorified immortal flesh that can never die. They're living in this world, beholding that life as their life. And they're walking in the power of the life the Holy Spirit built instead of walking in the life they can build themselves by the strength of the flesh. Right? That's someone who is spiritual. And like we just talked about with Paul, they're mindful of themselves and the inability they have in themselves to produce the fruit of God's life. How many of you think you can produce the fruit of God's life through your own strength? Okay. Well, we all know we can't do it. Right? None of us can do it. We get confused occasionally. <laughs> Only occasionally. Only occasionally. 
Someone who is spiritual, they see the strength that they have in themselves can only produce a life that's dust, right? I don't care how much good I can do. If I can take all the good that I can do and I could pile it up into a ball here, it can't save me from the grave. Can't save me from the grave. It's, as the scriptures would say, it's as filthy rags. You know, Jesus wasn't saved from the grave by all the good that he did. This will upset people, but I don't care. All the good that Jesus did outwardly in the earth was as filthy rags towards the end of raising him up out of the grave. None of those things were the power that raised him up out of the grave. He, he was raised up out of the grave by the power of the Father's love for him. He was raised up out of the grave by the power of the Father's faithfulness towards him, not his faithfulness towards the Father. The, thing that, the beautiful thing that Jesus did was that he rested in the Father's love for him. He saw this guy's eyes are full of love for me. This guy has a life in himself that can even conquer this cross. And I'm not going to walk in the strength I have in myself to overcome this cross, but I'm going to walk in the strength that's in the Father to cause me to overcome this cross. And so he come out of the grave having conquered the death of the cross and having conquered the world. And now those who are spiritual are walking in the power of a life that conquered the world. They're not walking in the power of the life they can build themselves. Hallelujah. So a spiritual person is someone who's living their lives in the world looking to the faith that was revealed in Jesus to be justified with life. That's what they're doing. They're looking to the faith that was revealed in Jesus to be justified with life. We all want life. We see it as some kind of sign that we are as we ought to be. Right? We straight. And we all the time analyze in our life to see if we think we have the life that will justify us, right? Do I have the car that will justify me? Do I have the house that will justify me? Do I have the spouse that will justify me? Do I have the kids that will justify me? Do I have the job that will justify me? We're all the time looking for things that we think can justify us with life. But a person who is spiritual doesn't see any of the things in the world as being able to justify them with life. They lived their lives in the world beholding the faith that was revealed in Jesus as the power to be justified with life. That's what they're living doing, right? And so they see, like John says, those who have the Son have eternal life now. And so a person who is spiritual sees they've already been justified with the very life of God. The very life of God himself has come down from heaven in the form of the Holy Spirit and is dwelling in me. What more justification do I need? What do you think a job can add to the eternal life of God? What do you think money can add to the eternal life of God? What do you think it declares to the world that God himself come and deposited his life in you? What do you think that says? It says you're straight. <laughs> you're good, bro. Right? You can't add nothing to that. The world will all the time try to tell you because the world wants you to walk in the power of your own strength. The world wants you to fall prey to trying to build yourself a life. That's what it wants because it wants to overtake you in a fault. It wants to take you captive to the fruit of death. <laughs> that's, that's a person that's spiritual. They see the work that God has, has performed in Christ to justify them freely with his life. And they live all their days in this world with their eyes fixed on the life God built them when he raised Jesus from the grave and glorified immortal flesh that could never be touched by sin or death again. 
I promise you, if your mind's filled with the life that can't be touched by sin, you'll feel justified. And that's how you would restore someone caught up in a fault. Because they would only be caught up in a fault because they thought the world could steal life from them. And they're busy trying to preserve their own life. And you would come and declare to them that God built them a life that can't be stolen from. You would come and declare to them that God built them a life that isn't subject to the corruption in the world. You would come and declare to them that God has built them a life that can't be touched by sin and death ever again. And that would restore them to a place of rest. It would put their flesh to rest. It would cause them to stop looking to their own strength to produce life because they would see God's arm has built them a life. And if you're not using dust to try to build life, you won't be walking in a life that's but dust. <laughs> I mean, you guys realize this body is dust, right? You know, if, when they take a sampling of our flesh, it, it's composed of like 99.9999999999% of the exact same thing that's found in the soil. <laughs> and so if you put dust to work to try to build a life, what type of life do you think you'll build? A dust life. How do you think you're going to feel should the wind come and blow on your dust life? I mean, that's why it talks about being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. You can't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine unless you're busy with a dust life. You'll be busy with the life that's overcome the grave that can never die again. And so the world might heap trouble upon you or a storm, but your mind is filled with the life that's already overcome the grave that can never be touched by death again. And you're like, what? What you gonna do? And I promise you, when you're walking in the kind of life that can't be stolen or corrupted, it will serve you with peace and love and joy. It will serve you with patience. It will serve you with meekness. It will serve you with all the fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking in the power of the life God built, that is his grace. He's built us a life, and the life that he's built us is filled with grace for us. That means it's filled with strength. It comes and it animates our whole spirit, souls, and bodies, and it animates us with the very strength that comes from an incorruptible life. And it keeps our hearts. It keeps our hearts from being taken captive by the sting of death in the world. It sets us free. Glory to God. Glory to God. That's someone who's spiritual, right? That's who a spiritual person is. They see God's already done a work to liberate their life from the world. They see God's done a work to rescue their life from being held in the world. God's done a work to hide their life in himself with Christ. He's already done the work to build them the life that they want. And so that's caused them to enter God's rest. They've now rested in the work that God's done. That's what it means. Glory to God. Does that make sense? That's how you restore somebody. You tell them this. The only reason they're overtaken in a fault is because they think their life is being harmed. And they're busy trying to defend their own life. And now you come and tell them about the God that defended their life. And that the thing that was against their life has been decapitated. It's headless. It's dead. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? Hallelujah. Come and show them the grave where death was buried. And they'll start feeling strong again. Right? Glory to God. So restore such a one. Restore someone caught up in a fault in the spirit of meekness. 
I think we hit on this a little bit in the Bible study, but we go so many places, I don't know. But the, the world's idea of meekness is more like um, false humility. There's like a false humility in the world that we call humble, right? And so the world's idea of meekness is more like a false humility where we think it's humble to think poorly of ourselves, right? If someone tears themselves down and despises themselves, we think that's humble. That, that's not really humble. It's not humble to have a bad opinion of yourselves. And we actually have lots of bad doctrine that has permeated the church through a poor guy that would wish he could take away all his doctrine now, but a poor guy named Calvin who taught the depravity of man, right? And the way he tried to explain man is woefully uh, evil, actually, meaning it, didn't, it doesn't come from above. Now, if you want to come and say man doesn't have the ability in themselves to produce life, amen. But if we weren't created with the ability to produce life, so how can that make us depraved? <laughs> we don't have the ability to produce life. And so Calvin's whole doctrine is a form of false humility. And in fact, it's so full of pride that it's, it's the poison of ass, there's no doubt about it. Right? And so biblical humi humility isn't to d denigrate yourself. That's not biblical humility. Biblical humility means to think little of your ability to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it means. It means to think little of your ability to justify yourself. That's what it means. It means to think little of your ability to produce a righteous life. That's what it means. You look at all your strength, you look at all the strength in the systems of the world, and your heart says those things can't produce a righteous life. The only one that can produce a righteous life is God. Biblical humility is to make much of God's ability to produce a righteous life free from your works. That's biblical humility. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. Why is it called the mighty hand of the Lord? Because in that guy's hand is the strength to produce a righteous life for you to walk in free from your works. And that's why you humble yourself. Because if you're busy thinking of your own ability and the strength that's in the world to have a righteous life, you're lifted up in your heart. You're making much of your own strength and you're making much of the strength that's in the world. Biblical humility is you think little of your strength and you think little of the strength and the systems in the world to produce a righteous life. You said they can't get it done. And here's the metric that you use to judge whether or not it can get it done. Can it give you a body that can never die again? Can it manifest the immortality of God inside of you? Then it's impotent. That's biblical, that's biblical humility. That's meekness, right? You look at the best the world can do. You look at the best it can produce. You look at the best your strength can produce. And you say, you know what? It can't give me a life that can conquer the grave. So it's dung. It's worthless. And then you think of, but who does have the strength to give me a life that overcomes the grave? Your mind becomes filled with the mighty hand of God, right? That's biblical humility, right? You could be, I mean, the man Moses. Do you know the man Moses wrote in the scriptures that he was the most humble man in the whole world? He wrote that about himself. 
Do we think that sounds humble? Let's just be honest. I mean, listen, we're all friends here. We love each other. We've already accepted each other's uh, idiosyncrasies, right? And I'm the chief of having idiosyncrasies, and here you guys still all sit. Let's just be honest. The first thing that wants to come up with uh, in us is like, Moses was arrogant to say that. <laughs> the man Moses called himself the most humble man in the world. <laughs> we think that's arrogant. <laughs> right? So that, that's humility. It means to make much of God's ability to give you a righteous life free from your works, to serve it to you, and to think little of your own ability to produce a righteous life yourself. Right? That's, that's biblical humility. So a person operating in the spirit of meekness, they, have, they don't just see, because lots of people can read the verse that says, we're the branch and Jesus is the vine. Jesus knew he was the branch and the Father is the vine. He was dwelling in the spirit of meekness. I'm the branch. The branch doesn't produce fruit itself, but the branch is connected to a vine, and the vine has the nutrients that's producing the fruit. So the spirit of meekness is a person operating in the full knowledge of what it means that we're the branch and God's the vine. That means you don't tell the branch to produce fruit. You tell the branch about the vine that can produce fruit. <laughs> that, that's the spirit of meekness. When they minister to someone that's overtaken in a fault, they don't speak swelling words of vanity that cause people to lust after life through their own strength. They don't do that. They don't come with sayings like, faith without works is dead. Are you even saved, brother? Because you need to produce some fruit to prove your salvation. That's called swelling words of vanity. It's puffed up in yourself with your own works. That's what it is. There's a faith that can save you. There's a faith that can produce God's life in you. That faith came to us in the person of Jesus. That faith is powerless to produce life in us unless we believe on that faith. Believing on the faith is the work that makes the faith alive in us. That's the work. It's not talking about the things you do outwardly. That's not what it's talking about. So a person operating in the spirit of meekness, when they minister to someone that's been overtaken in a fault, their words aren't puffed up with the good works that man can do. But their words are full of meekness. Their words are full of the strength in God's hand and what God has done in Christ to liberate mankind from the world and to give us a life that isn't but dust. Their words are filled with the life that God built for us by His strength that He came and offered us to in Jesus as a free gift. Their words are not filled with the life that's but dust. That's the spirit of meekness. That's what they're ministering to somebody. They see this person's taken captive to laboring and toiling. And because they don't have the strength in themselves to produce life, the more they try to work their own strength to produce life, the more they're producing the works of the flesh. And so what a person that's dwelling in the spirit of meekness will come and do, and will come and say, listen, man, God already delivered your life from the world. And he's hid your life with him in Christ. And then that person can get a revelation that they don't have to preserve their own life, that they don't have to produce life themselves, that God has given of himself his very life. And that will put their flesh to rest. 
And if they're not working their own strength to try to produce life, guess what doesn't have an opportunity to come forth? The works of the flesh. The fruit of death. You see? You see how that works? A person dwelling in the spirit of meekness knows there's one who's good. One who's good. They see the power to be delivered from the works of the flesh and to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit is contained in God's goodness and faithfulness to us, not in our faithfulness to touch not, taste not, handle not. That's what they see. They're not busy looking at someone overtaken in a fault thinking, well, if they could just touch not, taste not, handle not, then they could have life. That's not what they're thinking. That's not what they're thinking. That's not what they're ministering. They're seeing if they could just see the faithfulness of God towards them. If they could just see the goodness in God's heart towards them to manifest His life in them free from their works, then they could be set free. That's what they're busy thinking. And so they come alongside talking that. In Matthew 11, everybody knows these verses, right? In Matthew 11, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that are laboring and carrying a heavy burden, you know what the heavy burden is? The burden of trying to produce a righteous life yourself. All those that think you can produce a righteous life by your strength to touch not, taste not, handle not. Come unto me, he says. Now why would he say come unto me? He would say come unto me if you're carrying a heavy burden because I'm dwelling in the spirit of meekness. It says his doctrine was light and it was easy. Do you know what that means? That the things that he taught them wouldn't be filled with words about what they needed to do to bring forth life themselves. His words would put them to rest because his doctrine was filled with words that made little of man's ability and made much of God's ability. That lifts the burden off of the people and shows the people that God has taken the burden upon himself and the burden can't crush him because he is eternal life. And so Jesus' words were filled with meekness. He thought little of man's ability to produce a righteous life, and he thought much of God's ability to give people the kingdom as a gift free from their works. And so he would come telling people about the strength in God's hand. He was restoring the world. We were overtaken in a fault. And he came in the spirit of meekness. We were overtaken in a fault because we were trusting in our own strength to clothe ourselves with life. And he showed up speaking words to us that made little of man's ability and made much of God's ability. And that restored us. <laughs> Jesus even thought little of his own ability. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that upsets you. I know we've made a whole lot of man worship, but Jesus pointed to the Father. He is the Father. And we're worshiping the man, Jesus, instead of worshiping the Father that manifested in the man, Jesus. Right? And so we look at the man, Jesus, and we see all the things he did, and we think, wow, look at all the good that he did. But Jesus made little of his own ability to produce the fruit of God's life. Jesus himself thought little of his own ability. And some of you are thinking, no, how could that be? When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, having a mind lifted up in his own works, calling Jesus good master. He looked at the works Jesus was doing and he said, it's on account of the works this guy's doing that he's good. What did Jesus respond to the guy and say? There's one who's good. You see how Jesus considered himself there? 
The devil was actually tempting him to think the goodness that's coming out of me is on account of myself. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus with a mind lifted up with works and had lifted up Jesus' works as if it was on account of Jesus' goodness and Jesus' faithfulness. And he was coming to Jesus based on the idea that he could attain to the kingdom of God by his own working. And Jesus immediately rebukes it because he considered himself. And he said, no, no, no. The good that's coming out of me is not on account of my faithfulness or my goodness. The good that's coming out of me is on account of the Father's faithfulness and goodness towards me. Hallelujah. There's one who's good, bro. Don't get it twisted. (laughs) Right? Humans tend to look on people that they think have the right fruit. Like people we think are holy. Like you think the minister's holy. Or the minister is somehow closer to God. And they think it's because of the faithfulness of the minister. I'm so sorry to use this language. The hell it is because of the faithfulness of the minister. It's that the minister has seen the faithfulness of God. It ain't about the faithfulness of Abraham. It's about Abraham seeing God's faithfulness towards him. That's the point. You know what Jesus was teaching the the rich young ruler? It says Jesus looked on him knowing his heart, loved him. And Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler, it's not about the good works you can do. It's about the good work of the Father, my man. It's not about your faithfulness to perform these things. It's about God's faithfulness to perform the thing that all the works you think you're supposed to be doing are actually pointing to the thing he would do. It's about God's faithfulness. And notice Jesus says, go and sell all that you have. And we miss the whole point there. We think that all that he had was talking about the material things that he had. Jesus wasn't talking about that. The rich young ruler come and said, I performed all of the law since the day I was a youth. And Jesus says, sell all that you have. Lay down all the good works that you think that you did. Exchange everything you think that you've done good for the good thing the Father will do when he raises me from the dead and you will inherit the kingdom. I promise you the rich young ruler cannot inherit the kingdom of God by giving everything he had away. The only thing that could cause him to inherit the kingdom of God is if he thought little of his own works. When he thought of having the kingdom of God, if he didn't think that he followed the law from his youth. (laughs) But he thought, man, look at the beautiful thing the law says the Father will do to give me the kingdom as a gift. Hallelujah. (laughs) Oh. Glory to God. Lay it down, buddy. Lay down your own faithfulness. And set your eyes on the faithfulness of the one who is good. Right? Thank you, Jesus. The scripture says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus, on the cross, Jesus was full of the spirit of meekness. On the cross, he was full of the spirit of meekness. He sat in the place where he needed life. He sat in the place where he needed to be justified. He sat in the place where he needed the fruit of the Spirit. He was naked, nailed to a tree. He needed to be clothed upon. And he dwelled in the spirit of meekness. He thought little of his own ability to give himself those things. And he thought much of the strength in God's hand to give him those things. That's why he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my life. He saw all the things that he needed. And he looked at his body. This body is but dust. That's why it's actually passing away right now. 
He looked at the dust body he had and he said, this body can't actually serve me with the life that I want. This body doesn't actually have the strength in itself to produce immortality. Only the father has that strength. He thought much of the father's ability to raise him out of the grave and he thought little of his own ability to raise himself out of the grave. The spirit of meekness. (laughs) Guys, when someone's overtaken in a fault, what we want is for them to be restored back to a state of rest. The problem is they've been filled with laboring and toiling, trying to gather life to themselves. And so what we want is for them to be put to rest. I promise you can't put somebody to rest by telling them what they need to produce themselves. (laughs) You can only put them to rest by telling them what the Father has produced himself. (laughs) That's the only way you can put them to rest. We want their hearts to be purified from fear. And the only way their hearts can be purified from fear It's through the testimony God's given us in Jesus, which is the eternal life that we've always longed for, is in this man Jesus, and he has given it to us as a gift. And that will purify our hearts from fear. Glory to God. We're going to finish with these verses, and I'm going to read from uh, a Bible translation called the Faith Translation. The Faith Translation. The guy's actively working on it, and so... You can't get the whole New Testament. There's, I think there's like six or seven Bibles or books in the New Testament he has done. But look it up on Facebook. Look it up online. It's called the Faith Translation. I think it's the best translation of the New Testament that I've ever read. But we're going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 9 from the Faith Translation to finish this up. And this is what he says. And for this reason, give all diligence to hearken to this faith, which lavishly supplies you with his goodness and virtue, and along with virtue, knowledge, and along with knowledge, self-control, and along with self-control, patience, and along with patience, God-likeness, and along with God-likeness, brotherly kindness, and along with brotherly kindness, love. Because if these things, which are contained in the faith of Jesus Christ, be born in you by hearkening to that faith, and abide in you, and abound in your heart, they will make you so that you will not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So you see what he's saying there. All those good things that we all agree is good, all those good things are contained in the faith that was revealed in Jesus. And should we live our lives in this world beholding the faith that was revealed in Jesus, we will find that faith producing those good things in us. And we'll find that we will not be barren or unfruitful in those things. But here's the kicker, the part I want to focus on. But the one who lacks these things is blind. It says they lack those things because they're blind. Not hearkening diligently to the faith revealed in Jesus Christ. And therefore they cannot see very far off. And they have quickly forgotten that they were purged from the bondage of death by which they formerly labored in vain for life. So it says, should anybody not have the fruit of the Spirit going down or manifesting in them, it's because they've forgotten what God has done in Jesus to purge them from death. It's the death that took us captive and caused us to labor to try to gain life ourselves. And all of our labor was in vain because you can't build a life that's got immortality with dust. You can't do it. By working dust, I should say. So it says they've forgotten that they've been purged from death. So if anybody doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit, they've forgotten 
that God has sent death away from them and that their life isn't but dust. So what would cause those things to be born in them? Reminding them that God has sent death away from them. Reminding them that their life is not but dust. Reminding them that God has built them an incorruptible life that's already overcome the grave. Reminding them the life they have in God can't be taken from, can't be stolen from. It is so much that it can't be added to. That's what will bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in them. Glory to God. Does that make sense? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that, um, man, you sent your Son to restore us in the spirit of meekness. Thank you, Father, that uh, Jesus come only talking about your strength and your love for us and uh, your power and your ability to give us life. Thank you, Father, that the gospel keeps us in your strength. Thank you, Father, that your spirit is in the earth and in us, guiding us into the path of your righteousness towards us. Thank you, Father. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome.